and welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scripture throughout his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. Today we are completing the study of the fifth chapter of the book of Daniel. Last week we covered the first 24 verses of this chapter, and you will want to go back and listen to that in preparation for the lesson. The fifth chapter of Daniel shows the writing on the wall. We have all used that saying in our lifetime at some time, like, You've seen the whiting on the wall. It comes from this verse in the Bible. God is writing and giving a message to Nebuchadnezzar. And today we finish the study of this passage. Be sure to have your Bible available and open to Daniel chapter 5 as we begin. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Our class meets every Sunday morning at 9.15 in the Lavorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. Over 100 people are part of our class and we are continually growing, but we have plenty of room for you. We invite you to visit our class if you are in the Dallas area. Well, Doug has gone to the podium, ready to begin, so let's go in and take our seat. Here now is our longtime teacher and my good friend, Doug Brady. I know that some of you were frustrated last Sunday that we stopped where we stopped. You wanted the rest of the story, and you wanted it then. But we just could not do that because we'd have lost so much if we did. Now, you look at this picture up here. Is this picture anywhere near accurate? That, that hand did not write in English or with English letters. You notice how that's writing from left to right the way you would write? The hand didn't write that way. It wrote from right to left the way that Hebrew, the way that Aramaic works. We'll see the true uh, characters here in a minute. But if you remember, in chapter 5, we started a journey the last night of the Babylonian Empire. And one of the first things we witnessed was an attack on the one true God by the last king of Babylon, a guy by the name of Belshazzar. Now, some people have raised questions about what God did here. They said, you know, Nebuchadnezzar got 12 months and he didn't even get a night. Nebuchadnezzar Daniel told him, if you do this, you might change the situation. Nebuchadnezzar didn't do it, but Daniel gave him this opportunity. Here, there's no opportunity to change things. But you know, people who do that, I say that, are rather short-sighted to me. Because how long has God been working on Belshazzar before that night? Did he not see, and Daniel, of course, said, you did know about what happened to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4. You're ancestor. Why haven't you learned from that? So th there is no lack of grace in Belshazzar's life. And here again, we remember that God has foreknowledge of the decisions that Belshazzar either that he will make or that he would make under whatever circumstances. He knows not only everything actual, he knows everything hypothetical. And so we need to rest assured that God shows grace when grace is due. Now, we also saw that the response of the Most High God was immediate last time as he reached out of the sleeve of darkness to hand deliver a message of doom to this last king. The so-called wise men uh, who he called, they couldn't interpret this message for the king. Now, last week the question was raised, do these wise men not know Aramaic? And the answer was, yes, they do. And uh, were the words that were written, were they not written in Aramaic? Yes, they were. Then why couldn't they read and interpret the message? Well, we're going to try and answer that question in depth today. But one of the things that happened was God demonstrated the inadequacy of human wisdom. 
again, to the entire Babylonian hierarchy, not just the king, but all of his nobles who were there. And, and it, you got to see a man who's a man of God and who lives an uncompromising life and how he acts in a crisis. Now, I want to see if you remember this, because this is a key point, I think, in this story. When the night started, everybody was in a banquet room. When the night ended, what kind of room were they in? Anybody remember? A courtroom. Who was being the defendant? Belshazzar and the Babylonian Empire. He turned, God turned it into a courtroom. And the end of the night, as Dawn correctly said, was the judgment or the verdict as to what would happen. So now I want us to see how did Daniel respond? And I think it's important to go back and look at this in preparation for today. But before we do, let's pray. Father, I pray that you open up this portion of the scripture to us, that we can see it, that we can understand it, that we can remember what it is you want us to know, how you want us to live uncompromising lives, especially in the pagan world that we now live in. And so I pray, Father, that you will guide us in seeing these principles and how to respond, that we can see the attacks that Satan is making on the churches in our nation and what we must do to stand strongly against them. Pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, Daniel was called in. Besides the courtroom, he got to speak to the, at this point, to the entire Babylonian government. Now, it's probably true that some of them had been a little bit inebriated heretofore, but it also is true that a number of them were probably, had sobered up rather quickly when they saw the hand. Certainly, Belshazzar had. And now, how is Daniel going to respond? What is he going to do? What is he going to say to these people? How is he going to respond to what the king is asking? Now, there are churches in our country today who would say, well, it's really very clear. Daniel should be a seeker-friendly emissary. He should stay away from the things that would push people away. Don't talk about sin. Don't talk about righteousness. Don't talk about judgment. Talk about the love of God and the grace of God and the fact that he came as, is coming as a lamb of a sacrifice and that they can all be joined in on one big family as an emergent church pastor would do. Yes. Do you remember Dr. Jeffers, that um, sermon that Dr. Jeffers gave where he said that Trump had asked him a certain question and he thought, should I tell him the truth or should I tell him what he wants to hear? And he said, I really had to think about it. And he said, I did tell him the truth. And that's something that, that we should be aware of. Well, let me ask you this. When you have the Holy Spirit working through you, what is his ministry? Well, if you were to remember back to our study of the Gospel of John, and in the upper room, the chapter 16, if you're looking for it in your notes, you won't find it, but Jesus is promising these 11 men the Holy Spirit. And he says in verse 8, and he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning what? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. And that's exactly what Daniel is going to do in, with Belshazzar and these noblemen who are surrounding him. Now, the first thing he says to him in this regard is rather telling. It's found in verse 22 of chapter 5. Daniel points out to Belshazzar that he had been forewarned of this eventuality when he said, yet you, his son, that is Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart even though you knew all of this. Now, is Belshazzar being held responsible for knowing what happened in Nebuchadnezzar's life? Yes. You know, I have tried to share the gospel with people. Les, I bet you have heard this yourself. Maybe, Susan, you have too. That, well, I just really don't want to hear that right now. 
I'm not interested in that. Does God hold people responsible not only for what they know, but what they should have known? Yes, he does. You read Romans chapter 1, starting verse 18. It will tell you exactly that. Here, when people say, you know what, I just don't want to know, you're responsible. God holds you and will hold you responsible. But not only did he say that, then he comes to the next passage and he talks about the sin of Belshazzar. He says, but you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. You have brought vessels of his house before you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them. In other words, you've attacked me directly. Those vessels were taken by Nebuchadnezzar in 605 B.C. They sat in his treasury all this time. No one that we know of doing anything with them. Now, obviously, Belshazzar knew about them. He maybe had seen them in the treasury. You know, when you become king, you do tend to go look and see what's in the treasury. And now he said, you know, I remember those vessels of that God who couldn't protect Judah. Bring them out. Let's have some fun. You never want to have fun at God's expense because it never works out to be too much fun in the end. He said, in addition to that, you have prayed the, praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, who do not see, who do not hear, and who do not understand. But the God in whose hand are your life breath and your ways, you have not glorified. Now, I want you to think that through just a second. He's saying the bad guy's life breath is in his hands, in the hands of the Lord God. Is it only the bad guy's? The good guys too. Those who are his children, he has their life breath in his hands. Can anyone do anything to Belshazzar unless God allows it? Can anyone do anything to you unless God allows it? Do we really live as if that's true? Or are we constantly worried about being scared or fearful? If God, well now wait a second. If it's talking about life breath, there's something interesting here. Does that mean what you are ingesting as far as microbes that you can't see? I mean, can God see those microbes? Can he see? Could he put his hand in front of them and not let them pass into your nostrils? Yes, he could. And has, I believe. And so we need to come to undersee the absolute sovereignty of God. So now let's look at the hand delivered message from the most high in Daniel chapter five, starting in verse 24. Then the hand was sent from him and this inscription was written. Now this is the inscription that was written out. Mene, Mene, Tikel, Upharsin. And this is the interpretation of that message. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tikel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. Now, let me tell you, that statement is fraught with meaning, and we've got to look at it very carefully to unpack it and to see what it means. We even need to look at the original words a bit. I hope that doesn't bother you, but we need to see. This word interpretation is the Aramaic word pshar, and pshar literally means to untie or to unloose. And I was thinking of this, and a good example of this I have found that in most families, there is a designated untire. And in my family, unfortunately, that's me. If someone has tied their shoes in a serious knot and can't get it undone, they bring it to me. When it comes Christmas time and they pull out the boxes with the Christmas lights and they're just one big rat's nest of a tangle, who do they bring them to? When they have extension cords. That instead of being rolled up and, and hung up properly, had just been pushed and junked somewhere. And they're all in a mess now. Who do they bring them to? Well, that's this concept. This is someone who can untie the tightest knots uh, to interpret them, unravel the most difficult enigmas. 
That's this man. This was the same word that was used in chapter 2, verses 25 and 26, when Daniel said, I can interpret this. I can untie this for you, king. There's also the same words that were used in chapter 4, verses 19 and 24, when Nebuchadnezzar had another dream. And Daniel said, I can interpret this for you. He was uniquely gifted to be able to unravel mysteries of dreams, it says in Daniel chapter 1. Now, let's look at the message for just a second. This is a close-up of that Rembrandt. We're going to come back to that in a minute. Go to the next one. These are the words in English up at the top. Now, you read over to the right, starting from the right. And every word, every verb in Hebrew and Aramaic has three letters. Three letters, every verb. Now... You may add some on the start or the end to talk about tenses or verb stems or other things like that, which I'll show you and talk to you about in a second, but it has three letters. Now, when they were writing this, it wasn't written with those little points underneath and you can see somewhere. They just had consonants. So when this was written, there were none of these vowel points underneath. The Masoretic scribes were the ones who came up with this system of vowel points around 1200 A.D. for Hebrew. So to help people learn Hebrew, all these Jews who'd been in these other languages who needed to learn real Hebrew and speak it. Now, this first word, there's an M, an N, and a placeholder. You might say it's like an A, but it has no sound. These are the vowel markings underneath it. Now you say, well, wait, this verb here, that has more letters than three. Oh, there's a reason. You see this first one, that's a vav. It has that point right there. That's a U sound. And what that U sound is, is a and. That's the conjunction and. It's placed on the word. It's not, you know, in, Hebrew, in English we, have a, we put and. It's a separate word. You don't in Hebrew. You add it to. Now, these last two letters here, you see, this verb is P-R-S. Uh, that's that's the, the three letters of this word. Now, you add this, which is the now makes it seen at the end. That means it's plural, not singular. So in a minute, you're going to see the word is Perez. And yet that doesn't seem to match up with Ufar seen. But when you put these two characters in front of that P, it turns it to a P-H where if you don't have it there, it's just a P. So I want you to understand when you say, well, it doesn't have Ufarsin, it has this new word, Paris. No, it's the same word. It's just in its normal stem, Paris. And you also want to see that because there is a play on words going here because there's a word almost exactly like it in the Aramaic that stands for Persians. Ha, huh. you begin to see that. Now, why is it that they couldn't understand these words. When he wrote like this, I believe he wrote in an acrostic. They would start reading this way and say, that makes no sense. And it doesn't, this way and this way. What it was is starting here and going down, and then starting here and going down, and then you got your four words. First one repeated twice. In addition to that, as you're looking at this, and these are the, the letters uh, written out of, of the four words, these words in Aramaic, in Hebrew, they're more, words are more specific. They tend to have just one meaning. But here in the Aramaic, they have the primary meaning of these words is this one right here, mina. And that's a form of uh, amount of currency, amina. This one here is shekel, which is like a, either a 50th or a 60th of amina. This one here has various meanings. It could be a half of a mina or a half of a shekel. I think here in the context, it would be a half shekel. So they're sitting there thinking, if they can figure out that it's an acrostic, mina, shekel, half shekel, what in the world does that mean? Those were the primary meanings of those words at the time when they were using them. But if you go into the etymology of the words, then you begin to see something different. Now, I found this chart I want to show you. Go again. There you go. It shows the Aramaic word. 
And then it shows the noun that means, see, amina, and then 60 gold shekels equals amina, and it goes down. But over here, if you go to the etymology of the word, it means to number, to weigh, and uh, down here, to break apart. So what is going on here? You see it here it shows that it's the plural form of this word. Which meaning do you use? And even if you were to get this far and you were one of those wise men, okay, numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. Well, what's the meaning of that? Now, it's easier for us because we know the end of the story. We know what the answer is. It's like when I used to work with my youngest son on mathematical problems. He'd say, Dad, this, this problem's impossible. You can't work. No one can work this. And I say, well, okay, well, what if we do this? And, and I start showing him some things. And get to the, oh, that's easy. Anybody could do that. <laughs> yeah, well, now that you know how to do it. Dawn. Question. Is the original in Hebrew or Aramaic? Aramaic. So the handwriting was in Aramaic. It was in Aramaic. Okay. So these guys could, could understand it. But if the normal person was reading it, they're going to read, mean a shekel, half shekel. Well, what does that mean? And if they think about going back to the original meaning of these words before they started, then they would get numbered, numbered. Now, the next question is, why do they have mene there twice? All right. I, I want you to, to think about it from this perspective. Neil, I got to ask you a question. If you were to say your wife is very pretty... Would that not mean she's more than just pretty? She's very pretty, right? But if you were to say your wife is very, very pretty, that takes it up even a higher notch, right? No, your wife. <laughs> I'm glad that you clarified that so everybody could know who we're talking about. But you see, you use the word twice to exemplify the expression. That's what this word, that's what it means when they had it there twice. Verily, verily, meaning truly, truly. That same concept here. So that's something you need to understand in this Aramaic language. So we've got the basic meaning. Daniel's now in a position to interpret. What is he saying? God has, mene mene is God has measured or counted your kingdom and determined that it was time for it to come to an end. Now, did not God tell Nebuchadnezzar that his kingdom would come to an end at a time. When no longer you reach down to the end of the neck that was in gold and it's over. Now, why is there really any numbering going on? Oh, yes. You see, God keeps accounts of all these things. How many years? Did you know that Israel was supposed to allow their land to lay fallow for the whole year, every seventh year. That was part of the law. But Israel stopped doing that. Do you know how many times they didn't do that according to God's accounting? Seventy. Seventy times. So you know what God has said? You're going to be in Babylon for 70 years. That's how long it's going to be. And he predicted it in uh, the, the prophecy of Jeremiah. Now, we're at 67 years right now, according to Harold Honer. You had a question? I also predicted it in Leviticus 26. In Leviticus 26, all right. So, yeah, that's where it talks about uh, the, the year of fallow. But it talks about how he would kick them out of the land, and the land would be at rest for how many years? To make up however many years it was supposed to. So, here we go. 67 years. Is Babylon, the Babylonians, going to let Judah go back? No, they, they're not going to let Israel go back. They captured him. But you bring Cyrus in there, and maybe he will. Maybe the Medes and the Persians will let him go. Well, we'll have to see. So, but you need to get him in there in plenty of time to give him the three years to get acclimated before they make that decision. So that's Mene Mene. Now we come to Tikel. Mene Mene, I understand, was about the kingdom. Tekel is more singularized or individualized. God has weighed Belshazzar in his scales, and he has found him deficient. 
How would you like to be sitting on Belshazzar's chair when the prophet of God says to you, Steve, you've been weighed in the balances and you have been found wanting. Not good at all. If you were smart, you would say, what can I do to change that? But evidently, Belshazzar was not. And so, as a result, he now faces the judgment of Almighty God. And on Saturday night, October 12th, 539 B.C. was the very start of a very bad night for Belshazzar. And the best part of his night was before he was killed, if you think about it carefully. Now this last word, Perez, Perez. He says, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Now, the Aramaic word here used is strikingly similar to the Aramaic word for the Persians. There's a play on words. But Babylon has now been given over and becomes a vassal state of the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, I want you to think back. Remember this uh, statue here, the dream in chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar saw that. He had it explained to him. And so what did Nebuchadnezzar decide a little bit after that? My kingdom's not coming to an end, and I'm going to demonstrate it to you. I'm going to create a what? A similar statute, but it's going to be all gold because it's all Babylon. Higher biblical critics will tell you, you don't understand, Brady. You're, you're all off on your history. This book wasn't written in the 6th century B.C. It was written in the 2nd century B.C. It wasn't written by a guy named Daniel or if his name actually was Daniel, it's not the same Daniel who lived in the 6th century B.C. And he knew all these prophecies, the, how truthful they were, because it already happened. He's prophesying what had already happened. But he did it for political reasons. And he said, and they would say, now, you also even have the, the kingdoms wrong in, in this. But he doesn't have the kingdoms right. See, when he was writing... He couldn't have known about Rome uh, in, say, 167 B.C. He couldn't really known about that. So the kingdoms, the four kingdoms were this. Gold was Babylon. Silver was Media. The bronze was uh, Persia. And the two legs of, of iron, that was Greece. That's the way it really shakes out. That's the way you need to understand it. Uh, your claim that it's Rome is just wrong. Was there a Median kingdom and then a Persian kingdom? No. In fact, who takes over after Babylon? What does it say? The Medes and the Persians. That is now completely indicated by the historical and archaeological research that has been done. The Medes really were the ones who reached out to the Persians to come together so that they could deal with Babylon themselves. And those two groups join together to form the Medo-Persian Empire. And who does it say is going to get his kingdom that night? Medo-Persia. Not the Medes first, and then the Persians second. And in fact, who was the real strength in this alignment? The Persians were. Who was the head of the Persian Empire? Cyrus the Great. Now, I used to always just call him Cyrus. And uh, then I was with a, uh, an Iranian fellow once talking to him about this. He said, oh, you mean Cyrus the Great? Oh, he said, yes, that's exactly who I mean. Because I think Cyrus was pretty great myself. But when they took over Babylon, did Cyrus come in and, and, and be declared the king of Babylon? No, he had Darius the Mede be the king of this vassal state. You see, because it was a joint enterprise of the Medes and the Persians. Now, I think if you look at this, you need to understand that the Bible is always right. I found a Greek historian by the name of Xenophon. And he says there's no question that the Medes and the Persians had joined together, but the Persians were the senior partner. Now, wait a second. He wrote in like the... 5th century B.C. How could these higher biblical critics not know about him and this? Well, they ignore him because he is not politically correct in their view. 
So, uh, but he, he found, you read Xenophon, and he will tell you that. He will tell you that they had taken almost all the Babylonian Empire, with the exception of the capital city, that Cyrus, the king of Persia, had appointed a man by the name of Gubaru, and Gubaru was his leading general to lead the combined armies of the Medes and the Persians, and it was his plan that was put in place that caused the fall uh, of, of Babylon. Now, let's look at verse 29 and see the fate of this man, Belteshazzar, where he says, Then Belshazzar gave orders, and he clothed Daniel with purple, and he put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation claiming that he now had authority as the third ruler of the kingdom. And that, the, and that same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. Now, did Daniel tell him, I don't want your rewards? He did. But the king now ordered, put the robe on him, put the gold necklace around his neck, and I'm proclaiming he's the third ruler. Can God use a situation like that? Now, was the first ruler of the kingdom killed that night? No, because Naamanitis was way over in Saudi Arabia, but mo modern Saudi Arabia. The only one there was uh, Belshazzar. He was killed that night. What happened to the third ruler? Third ruler was inducted into this new Persian regime by Darius the Mede. If Daniel hadn't had that happen, he might not have got put in that government. But when you see in chapter 6, the first thing you're going to see is Daniel being put in a position of responsibility in the new government to carry over, to help make the transition as clean as possible. You see how God works things? That was all according to God's plan. And so God is working this, you see. Now, what happened? Why did Babylon fall? Wasn't this place impregnable? Well, everybody thought it was, especially Belshazzar. But what he didn't know was that work had been going on on a uh, project up north uh, of Babylon on the Euphrates River. And the Persians were secretly building a dam across the Euphrates River upstream from Babylon. The site they had selected was upriver from and out of sight of the towers of Babylon. Some scholars believe that the dam, was made when it was made operable, it diverted the flow of water into a nearby lake uh, that allowed the Persian army to enter the city through the reduced current of the riverbed. Now, let's see. Do I have a map? Yes. If you look at this map, you'll see, show them Babylon. Right there in red is Babylon. But Euphrates River coming up here, now near this town right here of Akkad, that's where we believe, or I believe, the dam was built. And you see this little lake here? And that's where the water was diverted to for the period of time it needed for the flow of the Euphrates River to be reduced. Now, you start thinking about this plan, and although it's ingenious, it seems like a very poor plan to me. And let me show you why. Now, this is the, the Babylon. This is the main palace right there with the, I mean, the main temple. And right here is this Euphrates River flowing through here. Now, what happened was the, the Euphrates went down, so these men were coming in under the walls. They're about thigh high in water, halfway up their thigh. Now, you get in there, they have all these gates closed. All you need is a whole bunch of archers here, and it's a death trap for the Persians. They've got them in a valley here, so to speak, and they could have killed them all. But for some reason, there had been declared a holiday in Babylon on that day, and a feast of the king, and nobody was guarding the river. Now, who do you think added that to the Persians' plan? Yeah, because God is fighting through Cyrus. Now, was Cyrus a believer then? No. But Nebuchadnezzar wasn't a believer when he came and took over Judah. It's all according to God's plan. God can use whoever he wants. The heart of the king is like channels of water. In, in the hand of God, he turns it whichever way he wishes. And if he can do that with a king, he can do that with a president, he can do that with a chief justice, he can do that with a jury, he can do that with a governor, a mayor, even a George Soros-sponsored district attorney. But let's move on and not... Let's talk about Herodias. Go back to Herodias here a second, because he was a key historian here. Let me tell you what he wrote. 
Hereupon the Persians, who had been left for the purpose at Babylon by the riverside, entered the stream, which had now sunk because the Persians had diverted it to a nearby lake, so as to reach midway up a man's thigh, and thus got into the town. And had the Babylonians been apprised of what Cyrus was about, or noticed their danger, they would never have allowed the Persians to enter the city, but would have destroyed them utterly, for they would uh, make fast all the street gates along all sides of the stream, and would so have caught the enemy, as it were, in a trap. So that idea really wasn't mine, but Herodotus's. But as it was, the Persians came upon them by surprise and took the city. Owing to the vast size of the place, the inhabitants of the central parts, as the residents of Babylon declare, long after the outer portion of the town were taken, knew nothing about what had happened. But as they were engaged in a festival, continued dancing and reveling until they learnt of the capture, but learned of it too certainly. Interesting. I don't know how long it would have taken. You might think, but the flow of the Euphrates, and I, I read it once, it's, it's, it's so many thousands of cubic feet a, a, a minute. And if you stop it, I mean, plug it up, it goes pretty quick. And it may have been they started it the day of. And, you know, the, the lowering tends to start more up near the dam as it then moves downstream. And so you may not have been able to see it as easily. Now, maybe an engineer could tell us better about that. But these Persians, it turned out, were pretty darn good engineers. And they, they had this down. Kathy? Isn't it in Revelation where they say that the angels will be released from the Euphrates? And I think that's how the, all the mass armies will march into Israel. It's down that riverbed. Yeah, it may be, or at least be across it. But let's talk about this. They didn't get trapped. Uh, Herodotus tells us about this festival. Now let's look at... And, Chapter 5, verse 31. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. All right, Darius the Mede. Who in the world is that? Well, Walford gives us about three possibilities or three choices. Number one, it could be another name for Cyrus, the king of Persia. Number two, it could be another name for Gugbaru, who sometimes is written Ugbaru, the leader of Cyrus's army, or third, it could be another name for Cambyses, Cyrus's son, the crown prince. But if it was any of those, why wouldn't Daniel use the name of the other one? Do you know that in those days, and even following it, many men had two names? In fact, the guy who's writing this had two names, didn't he? Daniel and Belteshazzar. Both of those names are used in this book, depending on who's speaking. With Nebuchadnezzar, he called him Belteshazzar. What about a guy, a Hebrew guy we all know by the name of Saul of Tarsus? He was born Jewish. And on the eighth day, he was given the name Saul of Tarsus. But if you look in Tarsus, in the role of citizens, you won't find Saul. You know what you'll find? Paul. Why did he have the name Paul? Because that was his Roman name. Because he was a Roman citizen. He inherited that citizenship from his father. So he had two names, Paul and Saul. Sometimes you have two names because somebody else gave it to you, like Daniel did, or like Jacob. What was Jacob's second name? Israel. And you begin to see that two names. In fact, how about this? There's a king of Israel. There was a king of Israel named Jedidiah. Does anybody know what his other name was? Jedidiah's other name, you just don't know him by Jedidiah. You know him by the name Solomon. Solomon. That was the other name that he had. You can find that in 2 Samuel 12, uh, 24 and 25. So I want you to see that it's not unusual to use one name or another. Number two, I want you to notice something here, why I don't believe this is Cyrus. And that is... In verse 31, uh, it says, and he received the kingdom at age 62. Now, if this is Cyrus, would it be saying he received the kingdom? 
no, the kingdom really belongs to Cyrus. One of the things you got to see is it's not as pronounced in the prophecy in chapter 2, but there's two arms. One's Media, one's Persia. Which arm, which country is represented by the right arm? Persia. Why? Because of most people, the right arm is stronger. You will see when we get to chapter 7 that it clearly shows that one of these two parts of the bear is stronger. That's Persia. Media was not as strong. That's why Media went to Persia for help to doing this. Yes. And Chris, I've got a new King James. So uh, Isaiah 45, 1, where it says the Lord to anoint Cyrus. There's a, there's a cross here to Daniel 5. Well, let's wait on that. But I want you to see this was something he received. It was given to him. So it's either going to be his son or his general who's going to have this name Darius the Mede, I think. Or maybe possibly it's someone else. But those are what Walvert suggests. Now, there's a few considerations I think we need to make before we finish today. First one is this. Even though Belshazzar was an unbeliever, we as believers should be very careful how we use what, we, what belongs to God. Very careful. Talk about that a second. If we don't have any golden goblets that really belong to God, what do we have that belongs to God? Well, though, that specifically belongs to God. How about this church? The buildings, do they belong to God? The reputation of this church, does it belong to God? Should we not be careful with those things? Maybe we wouldn't want to do anything, you know, but be that as it may, we need to understand that there are things that belong to God, and one of them is your heart. One of them is your eyes. One of them is your ears. One of them is your tongue. And the things that belong to God should be used in a way that is honoring to Him and not dishonoring. You know, when God came out through Daniel to really put it into Nebuchadnezzar's face, you attacked me. You used my vessels to embarrass me. I don't countenance that, Belshazzar. Belshazzar, I do not put up with that. If we do things that Satan can use to diminish the reputation, that is the glory of God, God will deal with it. He doesn't want anyone to mess with his glory. He doesn't want anyone to mess with his name. Ah, there's another example, is it not, of using something that belongs to God wrongfully. His name. Mm. Number two, God doesn't just weigh non-believers. He does weigh non-believers, but not just. His people are also weighed, and if hollow are found wanting, if hollow are found wanting. Now, something I want you to see here, a lot of us tend to think, and I can remember at the time, you know, I'm not going to be judged. That great white throne, I won't be on the wrong side of it. I'll be in the back. I won't be up front because my name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I'm saved. And that's absolutely true. But there's going to be a judgment that comes shortly after we're raptured called the Bema Seat of Christ. You're not going to be judged for the sin that you've committed because that's already been judged on the cross. But you will be judged for what you did and didn't do for God. You know, like the, uh, the servant who said, uh, one of them, well done, my good and faithful servant, and the other. Well, I buried it because I didn't want anything to happen to this talent. And he took it away from him, gave it to the other. Because he didn't use what God had given him. Do you use what God has given you? You know, I, I've told you this before, but there was a time when I started praying, Lord, help me to, uh, Lord, I want you to give me opportunities to share my faith and to speak up for him. And after a little while praying like that, he said, Doug, you, you got it wrong. I've given you the opportunities. You just aren't recognizing them. And so I started praying, changing my prayer to help me to recognize the opportunity. He did in that doctor's office. He did in a closing 
sometime before then. I had a chance in a restaurant uh, just yesterday with a family meal of the Zuala family to, to say to the owner of the place who was serving us, as Eddie came up, I said, Eddie, is there anything we can pray for you about? He didn't know how to answer. And finally, I said, then I'm going to pray that God gives you direction of what he wants for you. And he said, thank you. We need to look for opportunities. God gives them to us. What are we doing with that? I want you to notice here Nebuchadnezzar's dream one more time in Daniel 4, verse 17. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. The first thing, if we're in a position of responsibility, we're in that group, the lowliest of men. But secondly, know that the living may know that the Most High is the ruler over the realm of mankind. We see in our country things that we think just aren't right. How could God possibly let this happen? It's all according to his plan. He is in control. Nothing is happening that he doesn't know about and hasn't made a plan for long before the world was ever created. He knows it all. He's got everything under control. And what does that allow us to do? Be at peace. To rest. Because we don't have any concerns. He said, put your care. Well, we'll see that in just a minute. Now, I want you to look at this for just a second because Bonnie thought this was important, and so I would agree with her. I'm going to bring this up. The book of Isaiah was written circa 720, 680 B.C. The Medo-Persian Empire didn't come into existence until around 550 B.C. This event that we're talking about today in Daniel chapter 5 occurred on Saturday night, October 12, 539 B.C. How long is that after Isaiah was written? You know, you're talking... 100 and so years, 170 years or something. Now look at Isaiah 44, starting in verse 28. It is I, the I here is Yahweh. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he will perform my desire. Now, does Cyrus exist at this time? No. Was he a believer any time after he was born before the event occurred? No. Now, I think he became a believer. I think it was because of Daniel. He will perform all of my desire, and he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Thus says the Lord God to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings. Loose the loins? When does that happen? Oh, you mean when somebody's sitting in a banquet room and they see the hand right and his knees are knocking together and his loins are loosed? Yep. That's the guy to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. You mean along the riverbed? Yes, exactly along the riverbed. And I will go before you and I will make the rough places smooth and I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through the iron bars and I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places so that you may know that it is I, the Lord God of Israel, who calls your name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and for Israel, my chosen one, and I have also called you by your name and given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. Higher biblical critics would say, how could Daniel ever have predicted something like that back in the 6th century, 70 years before it ever happened? Because God was the one doing it, not Daniel. That is their problem these higher biblical critics. God is the one doing it, not Daniel. Now, there's a promise that we've been given that I want you to see. Do you remember back in Daniel chapter 2 when Daniel was praying after he thanking God? Look at what he says here. He says, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. He removes kings and establishes kings. Did he not do that here in chapter 5? Is that not a perfect example of God exerting his power? And we need to come to see that, how he does these things. 
and understand that he is in control. Now, the other thing I want you to see is not only is God in control, but being in control, what is the specific effect for us? The question is, the, the answer is this. Look over in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. That's what Nebuchadnezzar had to learn to do. That he may exalt you in the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, for he cares for you. You could use the word anxiety. You could use the word worries. I think the King James uses the word cares. I memorized it in the King James. Casting all your cares upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. God will take care of you. We're in some perilous times in our nation right now. But God will take care of you and me. We don't need to worry about it. Father, I thank you for the time that we could come together. And I thank you for the time that we can open your Bible and understand that foretelling the future is an easy thing for you. You know exactly what you've planned it all. Help us to realize that, Father. Now, Lord, help us to be ready when the opportunities come. Daniel was ready. He didn't act as, as someone who was going to tone down your message. He gave it clear and precise. Help us to be those who study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that should not be ashamed, but who is rightly dividing the word of truth. Help us to be prepared to give an answer when we're asked. Help us to be prepared when you give us an opportunity to speak out. Help us to be prepared to do whatever you direct without question, immediately, and unconditionally. I pray that you will bless our nation and bring her back. If not, come get us real soon. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.